2019 marks an important anniversary in the formation of our country. 400 years ago, in 1619, a privateer ship named the White Lion sailed to the colony of Jamestown with more than 20 people on board who'd been forcibly abducted from their homes in Angola, Africa. This was the beginning of the atrocity of slavery in America. It's brilliantly documented in a major initiative of the New York Times called the 1619 Project. Over the decades, slavery became codified into law with two innovations unique to what became the United States. Slavery became based on race, and slavery became hereditary based upon the mother's status. In this way, slavery was passed down from mothers to their children, no matter who the father was or what his race. As a result, the 400,000 people who were abducted and sold, subjugated and abused, they grew to a population of almost 4 million slaves by 1860. It would take 250 years from the beginning of the slave trade in Jamestown, Virginia, before the Emancipation Proclamation supposedly freed African Americans. But as we have seen in our own lifetime, the history of African Americans in the United States has been a halting process of progress followed by terrible regression. Post-Civil War Reconstruction was undone by so-called white redemption in the 1800s, and the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s preceded the era of mass incarceration of black men today. And now, more than 150 years after the end of the Civil War, we are still dealing with the awful legacy of slavery that permeates our culture to this day. The statistics and stories of racism in the United States are difficult to face. But it is important that we encounter the truth of our past and our difficult present in order to share a more hopeful and just future. In this very special episode of Add Passion and Stir, we will hear how racism still permeates our country to this day and the powerful and uplifting true stories of men and women who are working to combat this grave injustice. We'll revisit conversations with MacArthur Genius Grant recipient Dr. Joe Marshall. You can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And even when you show you can, the, the real believers are the ones of us who are actually doing it, right? And so we're always fighting that. I always say being black in America is like you start in this hole and you're continually climbing out of this hole. Chef Tanya Holland. For me, what I notice about racism I find most painful is when people have low expectations of you. And they don't expect you to be intelligent or ambitious or resourceful. And, and that's, that's hard. Social justice champion Jim Wallace. So I tell young people always trust your questions and follow them to wherever they take you. And my questions took me to the city, uh, a white kid going to black churches for the first time and taking jobs alongside young men just like me, but they're black and I was white. And I realized that we were both all born in Detroit, but had been raised in different countries. And so I've been changed most in my life. My worldview, as they say, has been changed by being places I was never supposed to be and meeting people I was never supposed to meet or know or become friends with. Thought leader and philanthropist Robert Lewis Jr. And in 1976, I was firebombed out my home by my best friend who was white. So my house went up in flames, and uh, I remember we were angry, and my mom was like, you win with love. If you're locked up or arrested, you can't do anything in life. So I made a commitment in my life that I was going to be part of young people in community and shifting this narrative that, folks actually portray our poorer and black and brown communities in a different way. Chief of Staff to former Boston Mayor Kevin White, Ira Jackson. I would accompany the 37 yellow school buses along with the police commissioner every morning from Bayside up to uh, 
Dorchester Heights and South Boston High School, where uh, those black kids would be greeted by an angry mob uh, that was yelling the N-word at them and throwing bananas at them and occasionally bricks at the window. That's how violent and ugly it was. And Grantmakers and Health President and CEO Faith Mitchell. There are many Americans who not only don't know about disparities, but in general think that we have you know, the best medical care in the world yes. because that's what we've been told. And in fact, among developed countries, we're near the bottom. One of the reasons we're near the bottom is that we have like big differences in things like mortality and morbidity. Once you, you know, get past the surface and sort of look at the details of the American population. Before we can engage in a meaningful conversation about the legacy of slavery and racism in the United States, we must confront the truth of our history. Here's the Reverend Jim Wallace, the founder of the social justice group Sojourners and the author of America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. He's talking about his awakening of the reality of racial injustice in America. So I'm a kid in Detroit, 15, 16, now listening to my city, reading the news, uh, papers, paying attention, and something seemed really big and really wrong in my city, in my country, and nobody in my white world was talking about it or would talk about it. So I tell young people, always trust your questions and follow them to wherever they take you. And my questions took me to the city uh, a white kid going to black churches for the first time and taking jobs alongside young men just like me, but they were black and I was white. And I realized that we were both all born in Detroit, but had been raised in different countries. And so I've been changed most in my life. My worldview, as they say, has been changed by being places I was never supposed to be and meeting people I was never supposed to meet or know or become friends with. And so finally, it's a matter of where, where we're willing to go and look and listen and whether that changes our lives or not. And, and you said there was something uh, that felt wrong to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I know what you mean in terms of probably the inequality and so forth. But say a little bit more about for you personally, what did you actually see and what touched – what was it specifically that touched your heart? Well, it was about <laughs> – it was about this last book I wrote, America's Original Sin. Uh, it was about racism. So uh, I become friends with Butch. Uh, we're janitors together. Detroit Edison, big, strong guys, like moving the heaviest desks around. He's black and I'm white. We become buddies. I'm old enough to remember when we had elevator operators. So when those little guys were sick, they put me and Butch in the elevators. they got to give you breaks when you're doing the elevator. So I go into his elevator on his on my break and ride up and down with him and talk, and he comes into mine and we talk and talk, takes me home for dinner. And his mother says to me, well, so I tell my kids, we're talking about police in Detroit. So I tell my kids, if you're ever ever lost, can't find your way home, and you see a policeman duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he's gone, come out and find your way home. And when Butch's mother said that to me, she's just like my mother, not political, militant, cared about her kids, worried about her son's radical ideas. My mom said to her five kids, if you ever lost, can't find your way home, look for a policeman. A policeman is your friend, and he'll take you by the hand and bring you home. So those moments, those epiphanies, we might say, are what changed my life. I remember Butch's mom saying that as clearly right now talking to you as 
is when I heard her say that. So that changes your whole worldview. The statistics and stories of racism in the United States are difficult to face, but it is important that we encounter the truth of our past and our difficult present in order to share a more hopeful and just future. When the racially divided neighborhoods that Reverend Wallace described began to become integrated, businessman and philanthropist Robert Lewis Jr. and his family became one of the first African-American families to move into his new neighborhood. Mom had me at 17. She had six kids by the age of 22. My mom and dad had a fourth grade education from Lake City, South Carolina. And my mom just raised us. And it was this whole idea that love always wins. And she says, in life, if you love and treat people with respect, you will go far. Because she didn't know anything around getting to middle school or high school or college because no one in my family even went to high school. So high school was um, this dream, but how you treated people and loved people um, um, was how I was raised. And, you know, it started being the first black family in East Boston in 1961. Your family was? My family was the first in the Maverick Street Housing Project in Boston. And, you know, we went through a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of racism in 1976. How old were you at the time? I was one. And in 1976, I was firebombed out my home by my best friend who was white. So my house went up in flames. And uh, I remember we were angry and my mom was like, you win with love. If you're locked up or arrested, you can't do anything in life. And my mother used to always say, you know, you're here to do something big and whatever that really meant, um, Billy, at that time. And literally just followed his path of love and, and, you know, you know, equity and service and not really giving back, but being of, um, you know, but it was really being of something. So I made a commitment in my life that I was going to be part of young people in community and shifting this narrative that folks actually portray our poorer and black and brown communities in a different way. And what we realized is that if you had love, if you had a roof over your head and you had food, you can survive. And that was what my mother provided me. And, and literally, I lived that every single day is that, you know, be a good community servant, you know, love your community and the young people and the families and make sure they have really the necessities for them to survive. And that is a roof over their head, you know, a place to eat. And, and you know, and I'm excited about Mida because we need we need these great restaurants. And honestly, I'm very proud to say it's in Roxbury. You know, right in Roxbury, because that's where the food deserts and everything, you know, are or were. So this is what my, my life has been. So I just continue to live this this path that the late Annie May and the late Robert Lewis set for me and, and my family. So one thing that begs the question is how this guy was your best friend who firebombed your house. So we, you, you, you said that as it was it was as it was as if it were almost unnatural thing. But what was the deal there? You know, it was during a time of segregation, busing and everything happening in Boston. And literally, you know, from what I found out later in life, and unfortunately, I don't I don't use his name and I don't say his name because I feel like I validate him or it. You know, but what I heard was there was a group of, you know, other folks, you know, white kids who said him to him at 16, 17, if you want to be one of us or do you want to be an end lover, if you're going to be an end lover, then you know, he was going to get hurt. But if you want to be one of us, you have to prove it. And part of the proving it was throwing a Molotov cocktail bomb into our house and lighting our house on fire. 
one, that Wednesday night, I was at his house, and we had lasagna and meatballs. And your best friend, you're at his house, he's at your house. I watched him walk to my house when I was on the second floor of our housing development. And I seen him, so I went to get my jacket so I could see him out the window. And I seen him light the bottle, like, you know, and, you know, it's, um, so I seen him and um, watched him throw the, um, um, the, the bomb into my house. So I seen him, right? So it's personal, right? It's, um, I, I seen him about a year ago and uh, it was the first time I seen him since May of 1976. And I knew at that point that he didn't see me because he walked up to me as if nothing ever happened. Mm, really? And, <sighs> and if there's a couple of things, I don't want to say this. Um, last year or two years ago, the Boston Globe did the story on busing and desegregation. You could take a look at it. The woman, Farrah Stockman, was a Globe writer. She wrote the story of my family during the busing and actually ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize on my family story. And what was weird about it, when she won the Pulitzer Prize, everybody wanted me to go on a speaking tour, and people don't realize how devastating that right. still right. is. Right. So um, it's personal, but it changed the trajectory of my life. And the only thing I could say is, um, you know, it's about, we were talking this whole time, it's about moving forward. Um, and I can't let that one moment define me, um, but use that one moment to define, you know, where I want to go in life. Ira Jackson was chief of staff for Boston Mayor Kevin White when busing in the city was instituted, and he was an eyewitness to the painful truth of racism. Hard for anybody who lives here now to imagine what it was like back then, but after the Second World War, Boston had lost 250,000 people, almost all white. Uh, crime was high. It was a city with a glorious past and viewed as almost having no future. And what year are we talking about 1972. Now? 72, okay. And uh, then along came busing, which was uh, an enormously traumatic, violent, ugly experience uh, that I was at the middle of. And I'm no, there are no heroes in this story. Uh, we, we survived it, but it was uh, our Selma. What was it like culturally? Were people divided, angry at each other, uh, frightened? I, I, what, what, I, I can't use the I can't picture. use the words on the on the podcast, Billy, to describe what it was like. But I would accompany the thirty seven yellow school buses along with the police commissioner every morning from Bayside up to uh, Dorchester Heights and South Boston High School, where uh, those black kids would be greeted by an angry mob uh, that was yelling the N word at them and throwing bananas at them and occasionally bricks at the window. That's how violent and ugly it was. On the eve of busing, we learned that uh, Whitey Bulger, uh, who recently was murdered in prison, not to make this too macabre, was planning to shoot and kill black children that morning, that first morning of busing in September of 1974. And luckily, uh, with the help of the FBI, we put a stop to that. Overt violent racism is only one edge of the sword. Covert and implicit racism is deeply embedded into all facets of our culture and economy. Chef Tanya Holland and youth advocate Dr. Joe Marshall talked of the challenges they face. I'm, I'm trying to model, but there were no models. So, you know, I'll go to um, investors. They haven't seen anyone who looks like me doing what I want to do. So, I'm, you know, I'm pioneering and there's maybe no... Uh, belief or trust that I can do it. And, you know, it sort of happened with my first 
with with Brown Sugar Kitchen, um, I remember telling someone at the Chamber of Commerce, it's like, I am going to promote the heck out of Oakland. Like, you wait. And I, you know, I could not have predicted what Brown Sugar Kitchen has become and the access to the media and, you know, that I've had and how it's become this destination restaurant. I mean, I had no idea because people thought I was crazy opening up in that location. But, you know, the obstacles, I think, um, I mean, the, the hardest thing, and I don't know if Joe feels this too, I think the for me, what I notice about racism I find most painful is when people have low expectations of you and they don't expect you to be intelligent or ambitious or, you know, resourceful. And and that's that's hard. You know, it's like, I don't know, that judgment is, is hard to, that's yeah. a big hurdle. That, what you can know, you do about that? I remember George W. Bush, of all people, talked about the soft bigotry of low expectations was his yeah. phrase. And that, you know, that that really sets a tone yeah well i I think she hit on it period you know it's not that it doesn't work i mean just obviously and i just start going to the numbers and the statistics of of, of being able to save young people it's not that it it doesn't work it's just but it's just that i believe in it and but there's an entire view that it's like an aberration you know that, that that's not real there is a sort of uh, it's not only low expectations. It's like you really can't do anything. You really can't do anything about it. About you know uh, uh, the, the conditions that these young people face. Uh, you know, it's like, like I got lucky or I got special kids and all of that stuff. And I th- it it goes back to just you know I mean look for black people this is a hurdle that we've been sixteen it's, it's nineteen about on access. A, you know, it, it's it, it's just it's, it's just this. You can't do it. 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 And even when you show you can, the the real believers are the ones of us who are actually doing it right. And so we're always fighting that. I don't care if it's a restaurant business, or if it's a kid business, whatever, what, what, whatever you're into, of what you actually can be and what you actually are. Because you know, I mean, I always say black being black in America is like you start in this hole and you're continually climbing out of this hole. You're continually climbing out of this hole. And you know, with us, we go in and out of style, out of fashion, right? So, <laughs> so right. in the '60s, we were in, right, for a few minutes. But you know, we've been out for a long time. And 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 when I talk to young people all the time, they'll eventually they'll come to you and I say, well, you know, Doctor Mike, you know, it's a setup for us to fail. And I say, yeah, you're right. It's always been a setup for you to fail. And the thing is, you just refuse to fail, right? And I always talk to them. My job is to keep you from falling into the traps. And it's your job to remove those traps. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I you, you have you no idea. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I got on the board of trustees at my university, at USF, on the board of trustees. And and the, the viewpoint that I brought was like, they were like, oh, I never thought. When I, if I hear one more time, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> right. I'm going <laughs> to, be, 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 because you can't think about it that way because you don't have the lens and the experience that I have. And then the appreciation. But you got to be in the room to do it. You provide some, a lens that people just don't get. A lack of access to the sustaining necessities of life, like a decent education, health care for mind and body, business capital, and voting rights, has a deleterious effect on people of color in our country. Here is Faith Mitchell discussing the need for equity and health outcomes across racial divides. The interest in what we now call equity really started probably in the mid-80s. So if you go back in time for a minute, there was a big health and human services study that 
showed that there were these major differences in, at, at that time, they just looked at black and white differences in the diseases that people had and how long people lived and infant mortality and so forth. And kind of the first efforts in mid-80s to try to do something about it, we have not made a whole lot of progress, which is one of the reasons why there's so much interest now in what we're now calling equity versus disparities. And you can think about how disparities, that term describes the problem. Disparity is like a difference. Equity describes the goal. So it's a more positive way of talking about it. It's like mm -hmm. bringing people to equal health outcomes. And it's it's like a many-pronged effort at this point. So you have people in healthcare settings like clinics and hospitals that are trying to equalize outcomes so that you don't have these big differences in how people are treated when they go to a clinic or hospital or differences in outcomes because somebody doesn't speak English versus somebody does and so forth. So you have things going on in healthcare settings, efforts that are going on in communities in terms of just the information that's available to people when they're making health decisions. And and now in the last seems like, say, five years or so, you have a, um, more and more of that sort of inward look where organizations are looking within and saying, what about our board? You know, what about the mm -hmm. staff? What about the janitorial service that we hired? You know, and saying mm -hmm. we really want to see equity kind of reflected at every, every level in the work that we do. But it's tough work because when you're talking about race and ethnicity in this country, it's like a minefield. And some people don't even want to admit it's a minefield. <laughs> you know, they just want to say, you know, I don't see color or whatever. Mm -hmm. And yet we know that the history of the country is reflected in every aspect of things that happen every day. And it's in an area where I would say we've made so little progress. In fact, I saw, I think it was a tweet, actually, where someone was saying, the difference in maternal mortality was actually less, like a hundred years ago, between black and white women right, right, than it is right. today. Amazing. So, just to underscore the fact that it's not going in the right direction, there's been a lot of research in the last ten or twenty years on stress, you know, and and what it does to people's bodies. And in fact, in the cab on the way over here, I was thinking about you know, the latest incident, which was the group of black women who were golfing. I don't know if you've seen that. They were golfing, this. and I think it was yesterday, yes, right? Yes, that was terrible. And some white golfers thought they were going too slowly, so they called the police on the women. And and, and you think, yes, accumulated stress does crazy things to people. Right. Like, why do you have to call the police? Because you think another group of golfers is moving too slowly. Right. You know, right. again, mm -hmm. you get the message, you don't belong, there's something wrong with you. And, and yes, yeah, so the research shows it takes a toll. And then I added, as you were talking, I was thinking about quality of care comes into the picture also, and and then how people are treated in medical environments. There are many Americans who not only don't know about disparities, but in general think that we have, you know, the best medical care in the world yes. because that's what we've been told. And in fact, among developed countries, we're near the bottom, mm. you know, compared Is to that the right? Yeah, compared to the Europeans, that's just been consistent. But one of the reasons we're near the bottom is that we have like big differences in things like mortality and morbidity. Once you, you know, get past the surface and sort of look at the details of the American population, 
I think there used to be a notion that, you know, whether it was kids will sort of get over stressful childhoods or even uh, adults will get over stressful incidents. You know, you can see from like what's happened with vets or what's happened with women who've been raped or molested, much less kids who've been in stressful environments. With new scientific tools, they're realizing it's actually like changing genetic expression mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that there's there's a lasting damage. And, and I think that these are not acceptable differences. Mm-hmm. There's right. something mm-hmm. that we can do about them. And we don't just blame the patient for mm-hmm. it, but we say there are, there are, these gaps are the result of of um, kind of unacceptable yep. conditions that are remediable yeah. and, and don't just have to be written off. The same institutional racism that is seen in health outcomes and educational achievement has also led to a system of mass incarceration that disproportionately jails people of color on a massive scale. According to the Equal Justice Initiative, the prison population in the United States grew from 200,000 in 1972 to over 2 million people today without any corresponding increase in crime rates. And when you look at the profiles of the prison population, it's heartbreaking to see that more than 87% of those inmates are people of color. The Reverend Jim Wallace tells the story of one man in federal prison who eloquently described the system of oppression he faced. When you're an author, you get letters from people who want you to come and talk about your book. It's always a lot of fun. So I got one one day from a young man who said, we've all been reading your book and we hear you'll talk to people who have. Uh, Come talk to us. And then I saw it was from Sing Sing Prison in upstate New York, this infamous facility that I'd heard so much about. And he was an inmate. So inmates had been reading the book and they wanted to come, me to come and talk about it. So that sounded interesting. So I wrote back and I said, sure. When do you want me to come? And so the young man wrote back and he said, well, we're free most nights. (laughs) He was a real comedian. He said, we're kind of a captive audience here. So I agreed to come and we worked out the details. The warden was very generous and and gave gave me a room in the bowels of that uh, infamous prison, Sing Sing, with 80 guys and left us for four hours. Now, I was quite comfortable because I've been to jail on many occasions, and I've learned sometimes conversations with prisoners on the inside can be, can be very deep and very insightful and very revealing. So I've learned to listen to prisoners. They can teach you a lot. So we had a great conversation, uh, very, very rigorous. Uh, they'd read the book carefully, and they had some good questions to ask. But one thing one young man said, well, will stay with me forever. He said, Jim, most of us here at Sing Sing, the whole prison, we're from just four or five neighborhoods in New York City. Four or five neighborhoods, the whole prison. He said, it's like a train that starts in my neighborhood. You get on when you're nine or 10 years old, and that train ends up here at Sing Sing. A train, powerful image of this urban train full of unemployment and no education and violence and drugs and and family shattered, uh, disintegrated neighborhoods and lives and they pick up kids on the train and it ends up in inevitable destinations like Sing Sing. 
As daunting as those numbers are, people are successfully working to fight the odds. Dr. Joe Marshall told us about Michael Gibson, one of the many young people in San Francisco at his organization, Alive and Free. Unlike many young people who become trapped in the vicious cycle of crime and punishment in our judicial system, Michael was able to break free from the circumstances of his childhood and adolescence. Young man I met in the Youth Authority, uh, he was there for three counts of armed robbery and an attempt to murder on a police officer. And he, he was, when I met him, he was 16 years old and he was moving, he's from East Oakland. Mm-hmm. The kid was doing great, but at the age of nine, his mother got on drugs and basically his house became a crack house. And, you know, he became this angry young man. And, you know, his way of dealing it was to go out and sell drugs and, uh, you know, just uh, didn't work. But he ended up in jail. I ended up I ended up meeting him and he didn't have one thing to do with me because his mindset was that, you know, he's just angry. He's hurt. That's really what it is. Um, he, he He got out came to the program, and, you know, I took him through. I started giving him the medicine. <laughs> started giving him the medicine, the prescription. There were days he didn't take it. There were days he did, you know. This, but he stuck with the program. Uh, I asked him, what do you want to do? He ended up going to Laney for a couple of years. And then I said, I said, where do you want to do? He wanted to go to Morehouse. I said, you want to go to Morehouse? He said, you go to Morehouse. Uh, he went to Morehouse, had a struggle through Morehouse because he actually, you can imagine, all the things that happened in his life. He had anxiety disorder. Mm. You know, I remember one semester he got right to the end when he was getting ready to take his finals, and he just completely blanked out. But he stuck with it. We, we you know, we, we took him through. Uh, we basically became his family. That's how I said, you know, these kids really lack family, so we end up being our families. I'm everybody's dad. Let's put it like <laughs> that, right? I kept, I gave him the money. He ended up graduating with a degree from Morehouse, and he not, right now he works in EMT, uh, Michael Gibson. I call it from jailhouse to the schoolhouse. But I always say one person can do a lot of damage, one person can do a lot of good. And it's, it's either one or the other. He's doing he, he's doing well. But that, believe me, that's just one. I got a whole bunch of uh, stories like that. And Robert Lewis Jr., whose family home was burned to the ground in what today we call a hate crime, is dedicating his life to providing pathways to successful careers for children to keep them off trains to inevitable destinations. He challenges us to look for, find, and develop the enormous potential in the children that we as a nation cast aside. But, but you know, it's, it's this thing. It's like language matters, right? The narrative matters. So we don't use connotations that somebody said on our folks around at-risk, you know, disadvantaged, underserved. I don't know what that means. Like we say, we have, you know, our young folks are untapped. They're great. They're resilient. It's our story. This is, I'm thinking for some might say, is that new? We, I didn't know that I was poor and still never felt poor until someone in college said I was poor. I actually used to say, this is true thing about poor. I go out with a bike, 15 kids had a bike. When we would drive to Nantasket, which was a trip, and I would see that one kid at the house on a bike by himself with a basketball. We used to say that poor kid because that kid was by himself. We had 15 friends on a bike. You played basketball in the project. You knew you had a win to stay on because if it was next. So all of these things were just how we, we grew up. And when you had family that didn't say, you know, people use the word hand-me-downs. We didn't know they were hand-me-downs. We just knew that like my sister wore corduroys and they fit, right? And it's a little bit of what we're trying to tell our young folks today is that we can get so caught up on what you look like and all of these things 
Your zip code will not determine your success. Your dreads in your hair will not determine your success. Hard work, resilient, no matter what, you know, and you have a shot. And I start to think of even when I was in high school, when people said, mother had me at 17, welfare, grown up in the projects, no dad. Somebody already wrote the story. And we turned around and says, I guess we kicked that story because part of that was you surround yourself with great people. I think, again, the firebombing had so much of an effect on me. But I also realized that I didn't, I didn't really know anyone who went to college. And when I was a pretty good football player, you know, um, not as good as my brother. My brother had a shot, and he played a few years of um, NFL. So when I got recruited, UMass was the only college that said, we want you. Others said, we hope you consider. I grew up, nobody ever like said, we want you, except the friends on your block. So there was something about feeling wanted and needed. And it just reminded me so much of our young folks feeling wanted and needed. And when I realized I needed to do something, oh boy, from city year to the National Conference Community Justice, the work that made the Boston Foundation. But it was a report that came out that just said in inner cities around our country, young men of color were negative on every social determinant. And I'm reading this report at the foundation, and I'm the vice president of programs when I was at the Boston Foundation. And I had this baseball program that I always did. After I read that report, I brought it to a group of our young folks. And for the first time, they realized what I did professionally because all they knew me was coach. You know, vice president of foundation giving away money didn't mean anything except their eyes lit up. You give away money like you wear a suit every day, not just a sweatsuit. And what hit me when my young folks were telling me that all these organizations I'm funding, that they weren't using them. And then all of a sudden, when we look at Boston, 75% of youth-serving organizations in our city are closed by 7 o'clock. I'm funding them. I'm the kid from the hood. And it, it reminded me, why were we sneaking in playing basketball at night? Why are we sneaking into the pools, stuff at night? And think of it, I could have got caught and had a Corey for wanting to play, right? It's when I left and says, I want to do something that's about convening and using sport as a vehicle that brings the best of everyone together. Like, not just like we talk a lot about urban, but we weren't allowed to play in a lot of the suburban leagues. Don't ask me why. They would say, no, no, no. So we built our own. We built ours. And what's happening now is we have suburban programs playing within the base in Roxby, Dorchester, Mattapan. And then all of a sudden we realized that there was this need. So the west side of Chicago was being lit up with so much violence. They recruited us. Your hometown of Pittsburgh, we're opening up. I was so dedicated to being in Pittsburgh. And then I went to visit the community McKee's Rock. And it, it, it stunned me. It was the first time in my life I ever seen black, white, poverty, and brown is mostly Mexican. I've never in my life ever seen poor white people, ever. And I'm looking at the black, white, and Mexican folks, and it's not about race. They're broke, poor. Talk about deserts. Nothing was there. And we decided, if I'm going to open up, instead of Pittsburgh, I want to open up in McKee's Rock. And it's the same thing with Indianapolis. We're looking to open up. We're about two miles away from the white nationalist movement. And their compound is about two miles away from where a group of poor, young, black and white kids are. And we're opening up there. 
the reason why I share that is our young folks deserve every right to succeed, every right to be great, every right to take their resiliency forward. And launching the base has allowed us to use baseball as a tool to educate folks, for folks to know their careers, but also this other thing, which I love more than anything we're doing, we're, we're employing folks. We're employing folks from the neighborhood with jobs, and we're employing folks to participate in the 21st century economy. And I don't say this because we're on this podcast. If you can put a house, which we built a state-of-the-art facility in Roxbury, we feed them, we give them snacks and water and the things they need, then our kids have a shot. You will not be successful in school. You will not be successful on the field if your body and your mind and your heart and soul isn't nourished. And that's what we're looking to do. And when we do this, we're literally shifting generations, not just this group of young folks we're serving. We're shifting generations in these communities that we all should feel, as we were saying earlier, represents all of us. We started with about 150 kids. We're today serving about 1,000 kids in Boston, and we're in um, three other cities around the country. Um, what we're doing is we're using baseball and softball as a vehicle um, to shift the narrative for urban kids. So when you walk in a base during the day, I run an associate degree college on site. I have a state-of-the-art indoor baseball facility, but I have classrooms. We do dual enrollment classes. We do um, college essays, college writing, SAT prep, SAT prep um, testing. Every single thing that folks say our kids don't get in school, we provide at the base. It's a culture and in just in three or four years, four plus years in Boston, we've sent over 280 kids to college, about 140 kids, room board and tuition for school. We've raised over $40 million in academic scholarship. I have not accepted one athletic scholarship since our inception, which I won't. Um, our young kids need to learn and they need to read. They can't just keep playing ping pong pool and shooting hoops. We got to do better. And we use baseball as a tool of academic prep, academic readiness, while also competing at the highest level on a national level. I'm tired of folks saying they're disadvantaged in those communities, but I'll be honest, we've had kids that have struggled. Um, we probably have 100% of our kids knows more than two or three folks that have been shot and killed. 100% of my kids, like it's 100%. You know, and listen, I actually, when I wanted to open up my building, here was a story. I was telling folks I was opening up in Roxbury, where should I open? I found it interesting that everybody told me where I shouldn't open, right? They're like, no, 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 just don't open here. And that's exactly where we open, on Walnut Park. We open exactly where folks said we shouldn't because it's about community impact. So our young folks are, you know, I would say um, what everybody would describe. They're all first gens, all first generations, even considering college. I About 80% of our kids are Spanish-speaking, um, probably about 15%. African-American, 5% white. Um, you know, we probably have about 5% of our young folks don't play baseball or softball at all, but they just come for the academics. Three years ago, we had no girls, none whatsoever. Three years later, we have about 400 girls in our program. So we do softball and baseball. We do girls baseball as well. But what we're really trying to provide is our, and I don't like the comparison, but I'll use it. People say our kids should get everything that someone in the suburbs should get. I flip it and say, our kids will do better than the suburbs where they want to emulate us. And, and I say that in a real thing. We're the only inner city team in America that's won three United States baseball championships. I get more kids 
playing Division One, Two, Three college baseball, kids in the pros. And if you walk in a base, you will not see one photo of any of our professional players. Any. But what you'll see are rows of college banners in the base because that's what's changing the generations. Heck, I'm going to spring training to see my kids play. But we're changing generations to come. And when we do this, that's why I'm saying out of our 12 staff, all of my program staff, every one of my program staff, seven of them, lives in Boston, Boston Public School grads, and all college grads. So you can't tell me what our community can't do. We're going to show you exactly what it takes. So the gang member is now called college grad. Isn't that funny? Five years ago, someone was called a gang member. Today, we call him college grad. So this is what we're doing. And surround folks around the right people, have high standards and expectations, do not lower. We say at the base, no rules but expectations, right? High expectations and surround them with successful people. Our community is going to be all right. Now it's convincing the adult population to invest in them. So that's why we say urban talent American talent. Because when you look at them, please look at your 21st century workforce. If there's one thing that inspires me, um, and this is before we move to our new headquarters, we're taking things off the wall. You'd walk in and you would see the large big checks. And everybody was thinking, who was the big donor? Those were our college graduates that paid it forward that were writing us checks. Their first job, they're writing checks. Writing us checks and paying it forward. And what is greater than that? And, you know, and that's what we're really trying to do is to really let our communities know, one, you matter. And two, I actually believe, you know, there's there's just the great days that are coming. Discussions of race in America are uncomfortable for many. They are often highly charged, but they don't have to be that way. We have so much to learn from each other if we're willing to set aside our defensiveness and try to put ourselves in another's shoes or skin. Besides, we don't really have a choice but to confront and learn from our past and our present. So many of the issues that we care about, poverty, hunger, education, housing, health care, criminal justice reform, just to name a few, are deeply intertwined with issues of race. Honest conversations like those we've tried to bring you on this special episode of Add Passion and Stir are not a solution, but they are a beginning. I'm Billy Shore, and I hope that you enjoyed this special edition of Add Passion and Stir. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app, leave a rating and a review, and don't forget to share Add Passion and Stir with your community. I've heard from my white friends who have said, Robert, is it African-American or black? I don't know what to say. So I say, ask them what their name is.